Los Angeles, Ben Acker and I are celebrating the release of our new Star Wars young adult novel, Star Wars Join the Resistance, thematically timely, uh, with a big variety show, charity, benefit, fun around, book signing, book release party on March 8th at Largo at the Coronet. It's going to be Star Wars themed, it's going to be Resistance themed, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we've got uh, a great lineup shaping up already, and we'll be announcing lots of guests uh, throughout the month. We hope you can join us. The show will benefit Public Counsel, which is the nation's largest not-for-profit law firm specializing in delivering pro bono legal services. They're right here in Los Angeles, and they strive to achieve three goals, protecting the legal rights of disadvantaged children, representing immigrants who have been the victims of torture, persecution, domestic violence, trafficking, and other crimes, and fostering economic justice by providing individuals and institutions in underserved communities with access to quality legal representation. We really believe in this organization, and um, we know a lot of bigger organizations are getting uh, a lot of donations right now, and we thought it would be good to highlight Public Council, which is, while a very big organization, is really focused on Los Angeles um, primarily. So if you are in L.A., please join us for this event. We've got uh, our pal Matt Gorley of the I Was There Too podcast, uh, Doug Benson of I Love Movies. Uh, we've got Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks. So come see him anyway. He's a great guy and a very funny guy. We're going to do some fun stuff with him. Uh, the show, again, March 8th at Largo. Go to largo la Dot com for tickets. Follow at B-N-A-C-K-E-R at Ben Acker on Twitter. Follow me at Ben Blacker on Twitter for updates about the lineup and uh, more fun stuff. And you'll be able to get books at that show too. If you're not coming to the show, get the book on Amazon. You can pre-order it now. Now entering Nerdist.com Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing, that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writers Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right, it's the Writers Panel with Ben. And it's starting now. Oh yeah, we're doing it. All right. Will you guys? Will you guys uh, introduce yourselves on microphones so the listener knows who you are and what you sound like? Uh, yes, I'm John Brackley. This is what I sound like. 
And I'm also John Brackley, and then oh, I'm Sam Vincent, and I sound like this. We sound dangerously similar, I think. You do. <laughs> you yeah. do. Sorry about you, that. One of you put on a voice or something? Yes, that all right? that's no problem. We've, we've pick, worked, pick on, an accent, we'll we've worked on that. You are the creators and writers of Humans on AMC and on Channel 4. Is that that's right. right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Uh, which is a show I love, so I'm thrilled that you guys could be here. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's um, a pleasure to be here. Let's, let's get into this show. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have been writing together for how long? Well, we've known each other since we were 11. We, really? Yep. We met at school. Um, John came up to me one day and said, hey, I like the look of you. Let's create some content together. <laughs> um and uh, no, we've been we've been we've been friends. Uh, we've been friends since then, um, and I guess we had a sort of a relatively sort of familiar path into it. Mm-hmm. We started doing the kind of Peter Jackson style thing of using his mum's video camera mm-hmm. with our other uh, friends and that to sort of shoot reconstructions of scenes that had been on that week in the soap operas that we watched, and you know, silly kind of parody things of films and. Things like that. Um, what was, I'm, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt no, you a please. whole bunch of times. Please do. Sort of dig in on this stuff. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, I don't usually go straight autobiography, but I am mm-hmm. curious to hear from you guys. What was the stuff that you were sort of consuming as uh, young people and that you think made an impression that led you mm-hmm. to this business? I think probably in the earliest days when I was a kid it had to be Star Wars for me that was the thing that sort of kick-started a love of um, not just films but sci-fi in particular mm-hmm. um, and then as we got older I know we sort of it's kind of what we kind of bonded on over at school really things like Goodfellas um, Blade Runner you know all, the, all those you know classics that we that we, that we, we had a shared love of mm-hmm Thinking, like going sort of back a little further for that for me, I think it was a lot of reading in the first place, a lot of books when I was. You're making me sound stupid. Now. I know. That's, I said that's, Star Wars. That's got the books. I know. That's exactly. Come on. My, Can you read? What do you think my intention no. is here? This is embarrassing. Um, you know, so when I was around seven, I um, discovered Tolstoy, and no, <laughs> uh, no, there was, there are books that have remained like a really powerful influence on me that are not very well known. There's a, a British science fiction writer for kids called Nicholas Fisk, and he wrote a series of absolutely wonderful books. Um, they're called things like Trillions, Grinny, You Remember Me, A Rag of Bone and a Hank of Hair. And they're very, very... Um, you could be making this up. Yeah, I could be making this up. I would have no he idea. It's, they're probably out of print. He's kind of forgotten, but um, these stories were for kids that, you know, you might call them young adult now that mm-hmm. term didn't exist then but they were really challenging and interesting science fiction stories about cloning about time travel alien really? grandmothers yeah they're absolutely fantastic a rag of bone and a hank of hair is a wonderful novel it's about a family that um it's a world war ii era family that are cloned and real- only realize that they've been cloned in the far future for an experiment it's in- incredible it's things like that really blew my mind and then I and then when John was more into Star Wars and um, things like that I was more into um, no <laughs> interpretive <laughs> dance and uh, I was more I was more into um, comics I, you know that was that was my thing when I, I was a teenager I wanted to be a comic book writer and artist first and John yeah. you, you were never really that into the uh, comics, into the comics of things no. we had some slightly different um Interests in in that regard, but no, that was that was me. I was a, a strong sort of 
X-Men person when I was a teenager, particularly, among other things. Sure. Well, that and that's yeah. the stuff that resonated so much with teenagers. Yeah. I mean, it was all about... You're special, mm-hmm. but you're an outcast. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> right. Um, you know, X-Men was always the one for me, actually. Out of all the, the big boys, mm-hmm. um, DCM, all of, the, all of the characters that we all, we all know, um, X-Men was always the one that really, really chimed. And um, particularly um, Scott Lobdell and Chris Pachalo's Generation X. That was when a they great kind book. Of, yeah, that was great. Because I mean, uh, it kind of took that indie sensibility, mm-hmm. you know, they, and they let Pachalo do his thing. Um, and I love those characters. I think it was kind of incidental story-wise. Not mm-hmm. that much happened, but, you know, those characters and the art, you know, I remember reading it and the, and the leaves were tumbling over the frames and there was always a frog in the corner of the page. <laughs> and it was a real... In, that, that, is, that was what I probably loved it the most. My love for it was the most pure. Um, but then we, and then we kind of together sort of came to films, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started sort of making them, and then we we also ended up at the same university by chance. So we sort of obviously remained friends, and that's when we got a bit more serious and started making. Uh, we made an hour-long uh, action comedy based around snooker, um, which is called Maximum Break. I play the bad guy, John plays the good guy. <laughs> Our various girlfriends and friends played the other parts. And then we made the classic student film, 60mm short, really pretentious and serious. So we kind of Our big mistake there, though, is we, we made a, a short film that was too long to be submitted to any short film festivals. Perfect. And mm-hmm. because it was our art... We refused to cut it down from whatever it was, like 21 minutes. Yeah. And we thought, absolutely no way. We'd rather no one see it than, yeah, I'll burn than, it. than take a, a knife to this material. Was the idea at the time, were you studying film? Was the idea that you would go on to make these? Was that a realistic notion for you guys? Uh, we were studying film... Um, at Warwick University, but it was a, a completely academic course, so there was no practical filmmaking um, application in there. Um, but you were or, doing or stuff on your we, own. we did that on our own, yeah. Sure. The, you know, the course was almost totally watching films, writing essays mm-hmm. about films. Um, but, you know, saying that, you know, we, we got to watch an awful lot of films that we would just never have even known about, let alone watched. Absolutely. Um, and watching old films on celluloid as well, mm-hmm. rather than just on... VHS, so it was, yeah. it was a great experience. It's a nice little historical detail that we were actually taught how to thread a 60mm projector, which is obviously a completely uh, defunct art now. Mm-hmm. But we were taught how to do that by a, a trained projectionist, so every student on that course could thread their own 60mm <laughs> film and, and project it, which is kind of magical, you know, and we were right, that was right at the tail end of that. Yeah, was, you yeah. guys were, I mean, and I was in the same boat. It was right. sort of the mm-hmm. last generation of that, mm-hmm. learning yep. to edit on... On uh, a Steam Deck, yeah, 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 we did that. As well. oh, we've cut our first short film on a Steam Deck. Yeah. We, we actually owned a Steam Deck, which weighed <laughs> <about> five <laughs> we tons. <did>. We, <laughs> well, they, was, we were given. It was it a was TV TV company in London said, "Oh, we're getting rid of a Steam Deck. Do you want it?" And we said, "Yeah, that's hilarious." Uh, but then, obviously, we had to get it from the offices in central London to our friend's garage, <laughs> um, <laughs> way out in the suburbs. Um, so we had to dismantle it and put it in his t- tiny car. I don't. Um, it was yeah. And then it stayed there for a long time, <laughs> and we never used it again. It may still be there. Yeah. <laughs> like it, still, oh no, it might have got rid of it recently. Um, so when, when did this become something realistic? When did you, you it look at this and say, <laughs> <laughs> listen, you guys have been in the business for a while. Um, I hope they've started paying you. Uh, when did it become something, though, that you could actively pursue, or, or did you, you know, fall into it in, in 
a practical way? I mean, it, we, we knew we wanted to get into filmmaking somehow. Mm. Um, I think, you know, when we left university, I went to work for a TV production company and mm. post-production. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sam, you worked at um, a bookshop for a long time while you were writing. Various mm-hmm. jobs, yeah, um, mainly, yeah. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I quit my job in TV production to try writing full-time, and then we both wrote for a long time separately. I'm um, curious to hear... Uh, I'm always curious about that mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. and what kind of material you were writing, because that's sort of when you learn how to do it, mm-hmm. when you're just energized and churning things out mm-hmm. and really nobody's looking at it yeah. for the most part. What kind of material were, were you working on then, individually and together? Uh, we, we didn't start writing together till a few years after oh, wow. that when okay. we first signed with the same agent. But I, I, I quit my job. I thought, okay, I've saved up enough money. I'm going to quit job and try and give writing a, a go full time. And I wrote um, a horror film. Uh, and it took me far too long to write this horror film. How long was too long? Uh, I must have spent at least a year on it. Sure. Um, which, in hindsight, was a total waste of time. Um, it was far too um, odd and esoteric, this horror film. Um, it was quite fucked up. Um, and I said, well, Don't be shy, it was also bad. It was also bad, yes. Um, uh, and obviously, I sent it to a lot of agencies, and oh, they said. I don't think so. <laughs> um, it, did, it did get shortlisted for a um, John Carpenter award. The John Carpenter oh, really? award. You were a complete no um, one. So I yeah. don't really know why. It was on the they top did. ten for the yeah. shortlist. That's pretty great. Um, and, and you must have gotten something out of the process of doing. It. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because I mean, you know, Sam was writing at the same time, so we would um, always read each other's work mm-hmm. and sort of critique each other's work. We also um, were friends with. Um, the director Jay Blakeson, um, who did um, the Fifth Wave recently, mm-hmm. and he did uh, the Disappearance of Alice Creed, it was his, oh, yeah. um, his first feature. Uh, so we'd been friends with him for a long time. So we would all go to the pub and pick apart each other's scripts and help <laughs> each other, Vicious, and viciously shred each other's yes. esteem. Um, and that was a which is good for you. Mm. I mean, oh, as absolutely. a beginning writer, I feel like you need those mm. the tough notes, right? And us yeah. having been friends for such a long time, there's no mm. egos there. Sure. You know, if we if we think something is crap, we can say it and not be afraid of offending the other person. Yeah. You know, and I think that's very very useful. It's still useful now. Um, but yeah, those were the sort of formative, you know, really sort of learning how to do it. Reading a lot of screenplays, watching a lot of films, mm-hmm. um, and really trying to work out how it's done. Were there? Do you remember screenplays that you read that sort of had these? Moments of of epiphany in them. Uh, I remember studying the screenplay and the film for Back to the Future for a long time. <laughs> really? Because um, it's 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 such a good screenplay. It's, it's like a really it's readable perfect screenplay. screenplay. It's so tight, so smart. Everything fits together so perfectly. Um, yeah, I remember going through that for a long time. That's yeah, funny. trying to work out the alchemy. Was it? Yeah, I mean, was it structural? Was it the way that? the screenplay was written mm-hmm. was it the character I mean I assume it was all of these things but yeah they're sort of all part and parcel of the same thing you know it, a lot of it was structure at the beginning mm-hmm. um, because of working out how things fit together um, but obviously the artistry comes in those character moments that sort of just slip into the in, into the screenplay and, and, and bring everything alive yeah mm-hmm. uh, and Sam what kind of material were you writing on your own well, I was doing. Well, he was doing his horror film, which is you know doesn't work as a script, nor nor does my f- first script either. Of, of course, obviously, whose does? But um, 
it does have some horrible, horribly memorable imagery, like people stitched into sort of animal carcasses that are still alive and oh, people kind of, you know, sew into stilts. I don't know why nobody wanted to make it. Yeah, it's, it's not, yeah. not a well person. But um, <laughs> I, I was doing, a very, the, at the other end of the spectrum, I was doing a romantic comedy, you know, that had a happy ending, that had the, the, cha- the chase to the airport. Actually, it was in the UK, so it was the chase to the ferry port. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and yes, really, I, I loved romantic comedies at the time. I, mean, I still do, but that was kind of in the heyday when I was um, writing that. And uh, yeah, that was it. I was writing that, and I remember getting to the end of it and uh, reading it one day in the coffee shop when I finally finished it and thinking, oh, this is brilliant. This is definitely going to get made. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in that kind of insane, mad, luna- lunatic confidence you sometimes have, you know, sure. alongside, you know, your moments of. Um, bottomless despair but um you and you know and i read and and i entered it and what happened with me is i entered that script into a competition um and it won it wasn't it was one of the winners there were about five Mm -hmm. winners and it won and it won and um and that allowed me to get an agent an agent was Mm -hmm. uh, who who we're both still with um who's wonderful and she said oh I, i like this i'll take you on and that I thought I'd made it at that point. I think Sorry. it was about twenty-four, um, and I thought, "Oh, that's it." So I immediately quit my job without any sort of thought to how I'd <laughs> take care of body and soul. Um, I thought, "Well, I've made it now," and I was, and um, yeah, it turns out I hadn't made it at all. Uh, well, that's, for that's when years. the real work begins. Yeah, right. and that's when, and that's when you think, "Ah, okay, so maybe I do still have something to uh, to learn." Um, but yeah, no, I was in the romantic comedy thing, and then and then when John and I decided to work together, we uh, wrote a comedy again, and we thought we were going to be comedy writers. Um, that's what we and that's what we became. And uh, is that how you were? I mean, I assume you were talking to your agent at the time about yeah. <clears throat> what the career trajectory would be, and the idea was to go into comedy. Yes. Well, I can't remember much about the, talking about the. I think our career trajectory was get a job, sure. you know, get paid. Um, but she was wonderfully supportive, obviously knew that we probably had vaunting ambitions and we would slowly kind of uh, readjust our expectations. But we wrote a, a comedy film together which didn't get made, but it kind of, you know, mm-hmm. really um, uh, opened a few doors for us and led to some kind of comedy work. So we were writing sketches mm-hmm. um, and contributing comedy sketches to a lot of late night, UK TV shows, most of which are um, unlamented. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> but again, what a great way to learn the craft. I mean, you're, yeah. you're making these things that are mm-hmm. going to be shot. Yeah, um, and in a way, a yeah. sketch is just pure structure, and mm-hmm. that is above all what you need to learn. What almost all new writers need to learn. You know, the the, the natural gift for structure is almost never seen. You know, if, if you see that. Then that is that's something else. <laughs> then you grab hold of that right and never let them go. Um, but yeah, no, it was good, but it was sort of unrewarding in a number of ways. You know, you, the, they, the sketches would be changed, and um, we we felt that we couldn't do it at a very high volume. You know, we'd write four or five good sketches over a th- two or three days and say, "Hey, these are good," and they'd say, "Oh yeah, these are good. Do us another 50. Hmm. Like, well, 50? You know, we can't we can't do fifty. Um, so then we tried doing comedy drama, and then we got a first TV credit. Um, and that was really satisfying. Things started to click into place, and we were actually treated with sort of um, we, we were involved more on that, hmm. which was a much more serious proposition mm-hmm. than on the sort of cheap comedy sketches for late night TV. So we thought, oh, okay. 
and then, but then it was only when we tried doing a straight drama, um, and we moved sort of away from comedy almost completely, um, that we realised that's when things clicked for us, and then oh, that led on to us doing. Essentially, we weren't funny, <laughs> and we had to embrace. But it that. took you that yeah. long to figure exactly. that out. Yeah, we had to. Exactly. We had to embrace that. <laughs> but I'm I'm curious to hear. Let me just take a step back. When you started working together. What was different? What, do you know what each of you was bringing to the table or know what the other one was bringing to the table? And I'm sure that's evolved over mm-hmm. the years as it does, but I'm always curious to talk to partners about the beginnings of working together. Hmm. It's hard to remember sort of how it worked. You know, there was no sort of, you know, we didn't have a plan, as it were. We just sort of got stuck in and muddled through. Um, <laughs> In a way, British way. <laughs> which is which is possibly what we're still doing now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, it's tough to say. You know what each of us brought to it. Um, I think now you know we've been friends for so long um, that we we do have a kind of um, shared mind. You know, we finish each other's sentences, all the blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. Um, that it is kind of particularly hard to pinpoint now. Like we will not divide a script up and say, "I'll do the the you know the uh, the scenes where somebody cries, and you can do the scene you can do the scenes where somebody falls over." Um, we don't really do. You are the funny one. I guess, like you know, what is the divide? If there's if there's anything, I think maybe. I don't know. Not, it maybe used it, to be it true. It never really works like yeah. that. You know, we both we both do everything. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it, we rewrite each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, that and that was my other question. What is your mm. process for working together? Uh, I assume it's mm. different on a show that's in production. Mm. Although maybe not. I mean, you guys probably get a big lead time before production starts. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's not as big as we'd like. You sure. know, I mean, yeah. the the way we'll work is that we'll always. Um, uh, talk about things an awful lot before we begin anything, outline them. Um, when it's a series, we'll sort of spend a long time talking about the arcs for the series, mm-hmm. for all the characters and the stories and where everything's going. Um, and then only then will we start to, you know, write scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll outline, um, say, a pilot or a feature or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, how, how thorough is that outline? And then how do you divide up the work? It's fairly thorough. I think in, in a way as you kind of, the, the longer you go, the more you know how you're going to be able to do something without outlining it. You know, mm-hmm. So you can sort of, we can kind of skip over this bit because we know that in the right we'll be able to just write that kind of cold, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything with a intricate story, uh, we find, needs to be outlined because, you know, you on the one hand, you sort of think... Um, you know, I've read things about, like, for example, the writer Philip Pullman, who says he has no outline and doesn't know where he's going. And I think, oh, that must be wonderful. And he, sort of, and he says, you know, and I admire him hugely. I love his double tools. It's a masterpiece. But he says, you know, oh, I don't want to know where I'm going. And then it's not a voyage of discovery. But we find if we don't know where we're going, we'll just hit, hit a wall and there's no way back. You can do that for, like, 20 pages. And then you're like, oh, though this doesn't work then. Mm-hmm. Um, so figuring out that puzzle, we enjoy that mental aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, figuring out that story, and then um, and then we write so fairly fairly thoroughly, I would say. Mm-hmm. Is uh, but you know you always you sort of all you have to do is when you've got an intricate plan like that, you just have to remember that change it. You know, change it if it doesn't feel right. Right. It doesn't matter if it works. It, if it, if it's just sort of you, you get to page twenty five and they're like, well, this works, but it's a bit. Eh. So let's you know, you just um, don't feel it's written in stone. But no, we are we are outliners, and you know, for the second series of humans, we sort of made a, um, 
we did sort of extra outlining on the end because mm. we wanted it to be a very strong end to the um, second season um, and so we really kind of worked on that and we feel it does pay off so we sort of, mm. you know, that is the way we will continue to mm. work because in, in, inevitably in, in the process you know the way the things work you know we, we will by the time we start shooting we'll have about three or four scripts oh, that's uh, not very done that's uh, amazing, and then yeah. we'll keep writing it as the, the show shoots and inevitably you get less and less time for the later episodes so I think if you don't plan ahead for those um, later episodes and put the work in early then you sort of run out of time and you haven't mm-hmm. got enough time to really you know, perfect the end of the, of the season and you guys work mm-hmm. with a room on humans yes? no not really no. Yeah. so you farm out the this is the room um, no, we we have other writers who work with us, um, but we it's sort of a hybrid system. That we for the second series of Humans, which was very successful. I mean, we only have we do most of the writing. It's only eight episodes, and the way it works in the UK is that people are always you know they don't work under contract. They're always got a few things on the go. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's. It's di- it would be difficult and unusual to say to a writer, hey, you're going to come and sit in this room for 10 weeks and you're not going to do anything else. It's just not really done. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very open to it. And, you know, it, some of the greatest shows of all time have been made in that way. It just doesn't... It's hard to figure out how to make that work in the UK, and it probably isn't strictly necessary. So hmm. what we did is we brought everybody in. And we have, like, a script editor, for example, who's a very, which is not such a huge role here but is important in mm-hmm. the UK system, who's very creative and important creative voice in her own right. We had a director in the room. We have our other two non-writing executive producers. Uh, and we have all the other writers. We get everybody in the room. We did two days, a two-day room. Um, and, and what, what comes break, out of that? Break the story. For, the, story. for the season. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. we'll, we'll go into that. Me and, me and Sam will, you know, as I say, come up with those arcs for the, sure. the storylines and the characters. And then we'll all go in and talk about them and tear them apart and put them back together. And so everyone sort of invested in the story and, 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 and you know, mm-hmm. we're still sitting there making it better, hopefully. That yeah. seems like an awful lot to take on for two days. I mean, even just looking at your second season, mm-hmm. that first episode kind of sets up six different storylines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Not a question. It's pretty hectic. Yeah, yeah. No, it just makes me think, yeah, yeah. let's do, uh, let's, let's, let's streamline it a bit. Come on. <laughs> Um, well, we, I mean, did, we, did, we did we did one two day session for the first half mm-hmm. of the series, and then we did another two day session okay. for the second half, and it, and it worked really well, you know. Um, and if you can find writers who um, are really able to contribute in the room, then that's a huge help. And I think it's really nice because for for them because they might only get to do their episode, and when they do their episode, the whole the storyline is always changing as well. Mm-hmm. So they will do their draft, and they will get a ton of notes. And it's not because they've done anything wrong; it's because things have changed. Sure. And we are a fairly intricate serial with a lot of characters, so you make changes, the whole thing ripples, the whole thing needs to change. So they'll do a lot of draft, and it's quite an you know an exhaustive process for them. But on the other hand they've also got to contribute to the whole thing because they could sit in the room and say, hey, I've got an idea for this and, that we, and we'll mm-hmm. do that, you know, if, if that's the best idea. But, um, yeah, and then what comes out of that writer's room, me and John sort of take away and we put more meat on the bones and then sure. kind of feed that back in. So um, that's the way, it, and it worked really well for season two. It's, it's a um, system that makes a lot of sense and I'm surprised it doesn't happen more here. Yeah. Uh, you know, because the, the showrunners, the creator, who are usually the creators, do have to be the final voice, right? And they, mm-hmm. you do want them shaping it with input from others. Yeah. Uh, and so so that 
you know, giving these writers some ownership, but ultimately letting you guys tell your story and then bringing them back mm-hmm. in. It does make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. We like, you know, we just feel like we like to pull all that input in, in these sessions and then, you know, it's, it all goes in the funnel and mm-hmm. it all comes out for us when we take it back <laughs> into our little office. And, it, and it's for us and then it's for us to kind mm-hmm. of um, do and then we, it all goes back out again. You know, that sort of seems to be... Uh, seem to have definitely worked. Yeah. But, it, but it, it, it's manageable with eight episodes. I think if we were doing more, if it was a ten episode or a twelve, even, mm. yeah, I think, um, then, I think to... then we'd have to run more of a proper room, oh, just because in yeah. pure time, yeah. you know, there's not enough. Time. Or, or at the very least, expand that, that what we're doing right. with the sort of two with yeah. the sort of temporary room. Make it a better. Tent. I have a retreat. Yeah, <laughs> yes. a retreat. Well, I mean, they do they do, they do work those things for us actually. Um, yeah, but that's kind of that's kind of it. Uh, was this the way? So you guys worked on MI5 for a few yeah. years, right? Is this the process on there? Is that where you took this, or is, is your humans process a, a different animal? Uh, I think ours is sort of a it's sort of a version of what happened okay. on there. I mean, we there are ten uh, seasons of. Um, Spooks, as it's called in mm-hmm. UK, MI5, and we joined for the ninth, and we were sort of the lead writers on the tenth, and we sort of concluded the the whole thing. Um, in the ninth uh, series, <clears throat> it was an episodic show, so it was story of the week. Right. Um, so it was a bit easier to with a serial. There is there's right. always a serial arc Elements. over the whole thing, but that's sort of quite low in the mix. Certainly sure. in the sort of it, uh, it becomes easier to farm out. In fact, I remember series. one of our direct. You know, we would have like just a little t- scene or two of serial mm-hmm. um, in. Every in the story of the week each week and these were referred to as serial beats and one of our directors who's quite an established guy sort of complained about it because he just wanted to tell his story of the week and you know, as, as most good TV directors do they just <laughs> want to tell their story as best they can and you're like saying no you've got to do this and um and he said, oh, I resent having to do these cereal beats. It sounds like something you have for breakfast, which was always sticks in my mind. <laughs> and they can, you know, it can kind of jar yeah. when you do that. But that Series 9 was um, much more chaotic because we were only hired to do one. Oh, we God. didn't think we would um, get that job. We were At that time, we were um, sort of thinking of leaving the industry, actually. Really? We got, because... Yeah, what, yeah. So, what had been going on in the interim? Well, we'd 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 done this um, uh, one episode of a comedy drama on BBC called Hotel Babylon, mm-hmm. uh, and when we got that gig, it was our first sort of big credit. It was prime time show. Um, it was another case of we've made it. We've made it. Yep. This is our yeah. big credit. We're going to be <laughs> working, you know, yeah. solidly forever. This yeah. is fine. We are in the um, elite pool. But then after that went out, we 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 just didn't. We didn't get anything else for. We, it coincided with years, the, sort of, it? the the big sort of 07, 08 crash, and mm. TV production in the UK kind of just froze a bit, and there was just nothing out there. And we said to our agent, "So, is there anything that we can do?" And then she was like, mm, "You know, not, nobody's really making anything." So we wrote. We had this thriller script that we'd written that we sent to Kudos, the company that we've done lots of work for now, um, mm-hmm. for their Law and Order UK, which is mm-hmm. you know. Like just like Law and Order here, in fact, they're using the same stories and they're anglicised. Yeah. Um, and we thought, well, that's you know they'll trust us with that because you know there's such a strong template. And, <laughs> you know, maybe 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 we can get on that. So we sent it off, kind of fingers crossed, and they phoned up and said, "No, you can't do that. That's full. But do you want to do spooks?" And we hadn't aimed for spooks. We didn't think we would get that. It mm-hmm. was you know one of the number one shows. Sure. And, and they did, and we got through the interview process we pitched ideas in the room um, but we were supposed to do episode 4 of series 9 and then the showrunner there departed because his other show got greenlit mm. and he had to go and do that and so it was kind of left in a slightly kind of chaotic scramble 
uh, and we emerged as the <laughs> unlikely saviors, aka the only people that they had to ask. That's really they, funny. So we went and they we were doing episode, and it was being shot, and yeah. um, we were doing a, we did our episode four, and they were happy with that, and they said, "Do you want to do episode one?" We were like, uh, <laughs> "Okay." We did episode one, and we went, and they said, "Do you want to do episode five now?" And this was as it was being shot, and we did that one by one. And we ended up writing five of that series, and it really was that as it went. Piecemeal. That's <laughs> crazy. It was. I mean, there wasn't any other way to do it. The Kudos are a fantastic company, but some, you know, when something like that happens, and it was another show of theirs that the guy had left to the brilliant writer Ben Richards had gone mm-hmm. to do something else, and so you know there was kind of, well, who's who's who, who can take the reins here? And it turned out to be us. And then for series ten, obviously we were in place as, as sort of from the start as the head writer, so mm. we were able to actually have a plan, sure, <laughs> plan the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, so was it was this uh, was this takeover of series yeah. nine because the episode you guys did went so well? Well, they were they were happy with it. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, what do you guys think you brought to the process? Uh, I think it's a tough one because we, we, you know, there'd already been eight seasons of the show, yeah. so we had to sort of, sort of just drop in and, and find the voice of the show. And I think we, because we were fans of the show, we were, we, we came in and mm. we sort of hit the ground running. And I think that's what, you know, that's what we brought mainly was be able to sort of just be able to write an episode of Spooks. Yeah. Um, but I think also we brought some. We had some other sort of newer ideas um, for our sort of episodic stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a lot of ideas for stories of the week, which I think helped, and we and we liked, and we really wanted to kind of keep the uh, sort of streak of humour going in, some mm. of them, which was important um, to us, and also important to you know some of the senior people who created the show and the, the execs there um, at Kudos. So. That was good, but I mean, it's mainly about being a ventriloquist. Like all episodic writers, mm-hmm. you have to learn this very, you know, hard skill. And we ask, you know, the writers that work with us on humans to do it. You know, they kind of have to match me and John's voices as best they can, and it's really tricky. And um, and they do a great job, and so and that's what we were doing. And we managed to kind of find a a voice that was sort of close enough to what had come before, but also had something hmm. newish in it. Um, I don't think we can make any great claims for <laughs> reinventing the show. We weren't trying to. We were trying sure. to, you know, well, that's not stick the job. to the invention. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then episode, you know, series 10 or 8, that's when you're able to kind of yeah, push it a little mm-hmm. bit more towards what you want to do. We wanted to kind of introduce this very sort of elegiac, sort of mournful tone because that's money, baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what people and want yeah, It is what we people wanted, want yeah, to We wanted to hark back to the <laughs> Cold War and things. And we were allowed, you know, because we'd, we'd, we'd kind of got Series 9 there. We, you know, they were, they gave us some free reign and, and went with it. Um, and we were allowed to end the show, you know, we, we that was really good. You know, that was nerve-wracking, <laughs> extraordinarily sure. nerve-wracking to write the last episode of such a successful and well-loved show after 10 series. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing that, you know, you guys coming in after eight seasons, yeah. the target's pretty clear, right? You know, you know what this show can be at its best because you're fans of it. Uh, you've seen when it's not working, I'm yeah. sure. Um, so, so the target is very clear. So on humans, how do you, as you say, you know, the, the job of your writers is to emulate your voice. How do you make that target clear for your writers? Uh, especially early on, I mean, before there was... When there were only scripts, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. That is... That's a good question. I mean, yeah. it's it, 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 at the beginning, you know, on the first series, it was just scripts. You know, we wrote the first uh, three, was it, or four um, scripts? I, I can't remember. remember. Um, no, no, because Joe Barton is our episode four specialist. Right, so we wrote the first we always three. Joke. He, was, he does episode four of all the series he works on. <laughs> really? Um, he's great. He's, a very good, he's doing very That's well. Funny. He's got a couple of films going, but he, he's done episode four for us in series one and series yeah. two. <laughs> he did two in this upcoming series. Um, but so I think it was a question of you know them reading our sort mm-hmm. of earlier scripts and then just talking to them a lot, talking to them a lot about it. Um, talking to our directors um, and all just keeping talking about it. It, it for humans in the first series it was the sort of the getting the tone right yeah. was, was the big thing I would imagine that was um, difficult uh, it's sort of landing that domestic sci-fi um, obviously it's got its thriller elements but the sort of the routine is through the family mm-hmm. um, and having enough sort of thriller enough seriousness uh, being able to tackle the sort of quite sort of sizable issues in there, the bits of quite big ideas, but at the same time making it relatable and funny mm-hmm. um, and wide ranging. So I think, yeah, it's just a, a lot of a lot of talking, a lot of getting a lot of smart people but, in the room and dis- in that series. Well, I remember we had our writers and you know and everybody else who you know because a lot of other mm-hmm. creative voices, you know, the people, the partners, the archipelagos, kudos, the execs, the producer. The script so they all really you know they all have something to say as well and they're and they're very creative in their own right so a lot of voice in the room but we were kind of finding the identity to that because people were, were throwing out ideas and hmm. you know again it's down to me and john to sort of shape that you know say actually no that's good let's take it let's move in that direction a bit and then no that one's too out there you know so you're kind of the curator of it in those mm-hmm. early days mm-hmm. and you're finding it together but again you know it's really good to have lots of input from other people, the, the thing, big challenge for us was writing the family drama, and um, we hmm. were very, you know, um, our, you know, our, you know, the people in charge of Kudos, you know, they were very clever in sort of pushing us to say, no, no, you can, you can do this because we, they knew we were comfortable with the sci-fi and the thriller element. That's so. Inter- I mean, the, the family, family drama, drama is yeah, the scared. best part of the show. You know that, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right, but we, we were, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. No, I, I think, it, I think it is, and we were. Um, Frightened of doing it, you know. We were, we were, we didn't so how, think we could do it. How did yeah, you wrap your heads around it? We just gave it a go. I mean, yeah, I know that's a not a very interesting answer, but well, you, you know, you, you try, just right? Sat down, but I remember, I remember John wrote. Um, it was difficult, and um, <laughs> I remember John wrote a really good family scene that was very rich and and funny and and real. And we hadn't really written this kind of stuff before. And he sent it to me. It was just a couple of pages. And we felt we were getting somewhere, and he sent it to me, and I said, "This is." And I found him out. I said, "This is actually, you know, this is really good. I think we might be able to do this family drama, and it might feel real." And I remember him saying to me, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of write it really well." <laughs> and I said, "You should always do that." <laughs> what do you mean? He said, you would just... think you would try and do it all the time. <laughs> But it turned out it was just trying a bit harder to yeah. be good. Worked. Yeah. I think you, you, it was just the real forehead bleeding. You'd like taken like a day to write the two pages, but it was great. And sometimes you try really hard, and it becomes like a keynote scene. You think, oh, so this character kind of makes hmm. a joke in that situation. And that's how he feels about it. Okay, and that's it. You know, that that's it. Kind of that's it. You know, yeah. that, sometimes that is just the key. To it the tells character. you so it's much. Like the thing that Dan Harmon says that you know the sitcom characters have one characteristic. 
you know, really. And every and then everything else is all revolving around that. Hmm. They obviously don't know. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, am I? I'm hoping I'm not misquoting him, but I'm sure he said that you know that this guy is sleazy, and right. everything comes back to that. You mm-hmm. know, and he might have loads of other ticks and jokes and mm-hmm. catchphrases and personality traits, but it it all centres around that one character. And There's as a you core. start to think about it, and you think, yeah, that's right. Um, and the, and if it applies to good comedy, it applies to everything. So yeah, um, yeah and uh, yeah, that that was the most satisfying thing to to have done that. You know, now people have said to us, "Hey, do you want to write us like a pure family drama?" And we're still like, "What with like <laughs> what with no ghosts? With, right. Like not even one like dinosaur cyborg? Are you sure?" <laughs> you know, because we're still hanging on to the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, thing because you know that's that's your that, that gives you your path that gives you your way through that Absolutely. gives you your tried and tested entertaining thing that you can give to the audience and you know if, if we wrote a pure family drama it'd be frightening and terrifying but um because you don't have that you know you're purely you're purely dealing with the truth and what could be what could be scarier than that truth yeah. and people yeah um was that what drew you to this material in the first place how did humans start to take shape well, it's an adaptation of a Swedish show, mm-hmm. um, and Kudos, the production company, uh, because we work, obviously worked with them on uh, Spooks, they um, uh, got the rights to remake it, and okay. they called us up and says, said, uh, are you interested in this show about robots? And we said, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Although, weirdly, we were working on this idea for a one-off that was had absolutely no chance of getting made as a feature or as a one-off on TV that was about a world in which there were these humanoid androids everywhere looking after old people, but it admit that um, the uh, young humans just couldn't get work. Hmm. So all young humans were, were jobless, like they are in Europe. Um, and uh, and so what had happened was there'd been this movement of people pretend, having young humans learning to pretend how to pose as robots in order to get a job. And it was about this old man whose care assistant comes to the door and she's a robot, but gradually he starts to realise that actually she's a human. Oh, but you know, had no, no, no it's like a short story. Mm-hmm. It hadn't, it had no chance of getting away. But we were working, we were kicking it around, and then they brought this to us, and we were like, "Well, let's do the version of this that is <laughs> clearly, you know, has a chance of getting made rather what, than our bad one." What was the original series? I, I don't know anything about the original mm-hmm. series. Was it very similar? What did you guys take from it? I think if you watch the original, the their first episode, um, our first episode of our first series is, is very similar mm-hmm. to the first episode. You know, we took a lot of um, the storylines and the characters. Some of the characters sort of are um, amalgams of, of mm-hmm. multiple characters from from the original uh, Swedish series. Um, but then we sort of went off um, in our own path. So I think you know, it, it gradually sort of um, diverged away from the original series. Um, as the series went on, uh, so by the time by the the, the final episode, it was in a, a completely different mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. And, and series two is nothing like the series two. It bears no relation. Sure. Well, well, sure, you're building it's off kind of, of it's just what you've done. You've already gone too far away. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we did like have certain differences, like the character of Niska in Humans, played by Emily Barrington. There is a character called Niska in the original, but she and she's also kind of a kind of a badass, but. Her story's completely different. She's sort of out in the wilderness, kind of wandering around the woods with a kind of group of hmm. killers of killing people and being on the run. And 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 they touched really interestingly upon the sort of sex, you know what it would be like to be a sex worker, but they hadn't gone into it. So that was the thing that we did like. Well, 
that's really interesting but they didn't really go there let's 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 go right in there let's do a story about that let's put one of them in there and sort of explore those very troubling provocative things about you know would it be a good thing to have synthetic sex workers instead of humans and what does that do you know um, it's almost an extremely contentious issue um and really interesting so we were you know we put certain big differences like that in from the very start but yeah, like John says, you, if you if you watch them side by side, you'd say, ah, oh, there's that character. There's that okay. character. And some of them have the same names, you know, mm. where we could, you know, Toby in our show is Tobbe in Sweden, <laughs> and um, I think Matty is Matty. Matty yeah. And yeah, where we could, we yeah. sort of... So what know, tip, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's, <clears> it's, it's, we, went, we went to meet the, um, the, the original creators in, in, in Stockholm, um, and they were very gracious, uh, and they quite rightly said, look, it's your thing now. It's totally pointless to just remake this in the English mm-hmm. language, exactly the same as ours. You've got to go and do your own thing and make a different show. Otherwise, you know, why, why, why are you doing it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it would have been an empty exercise. Yeah, the main writer, he, when the one guy wrote them all in series one, he said, look, I'm also here and here's my material that you might not, you know, so it was mm-hmm. kind of the perfect thing. He's always, you know, and he, you know, when we're up for an award, he'll, he'll come over and we'll have a drink and That's it's great. really great. And he's, uh, you know, he's, I think he really enjoys it. That's you know, great. Become, yeah. So props to Lars, Lars Lundström. Lars Lundström. <laughs> uh, so great. how did you make it your own? What were the things you were interested in exploring other than sort of going deeper on some of the questions and ideas that had mm-hmm. been brought up in the original? Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's the candy for you of the series? It is. I mean, it is the philosophy. I mm-hmm. think you know. Ultimately, I mean, it gives this show. You know, and we can't claim credit for this. It just gives us an opportunity to do so many things. We can be funny, we can be sad, we can try and be deep. Hopefully, where we can do action, we can have science fiction, we can be creepy, scary. It kind of runs the whole you know thing. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, it's the it's the way that such interesting questions just are sitting right there in the concept and all you have to do is write um, across the surface of them lightly and, and with humour and with character and they're there you don't have to hit them hard you don't have to have the characters sitting around saying hey so what do you think about the mind-body problem and <laughs> it's all a bit you know it's all a bit Cartesian you know you don't have to have that it's all, it's all just so prevalent there that the audience so that is the kind of wonderful thing that you could um, so it's like in writing those scenes from series one where uh, Niska and William Hurt's character talk you know it's all it's all about the character but really it's kind of scratching these problems relatively hard you know for a TV show I I hope um so it's 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 how interesting it's how how juicy it is how troubling it is and it's all naturally there in in the material to start with and um you don't have to um drag it kicking and screaming out of the subtext you yeah. just you know you leave it where it is and the audience picks up on it and that's where the, the depth comes from and oh. such a range of characters as well yeah. um, so many different kinds of actors good in so many different ways like so you know the, playing the synth playing people mm-hmm. it's you know there's a real range of people to write for. Yeah, I mean, I think what... Uh, you're speaking to exactly what certainly I responded to in the show, which is it's never ponderous. Mm. You know, you're you're tackling big ideas, but it is always about the characters. You're always in these very small moments. You're talking mm. about a philosophical and seismic change mm-hmm. in the context of... Uh, uh, a family story, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and uh, that first season is just is to me a perfect season. 
I wonder about conversations, if you can recall, that mm-hmm. you guys had between each other um, about turning those ideas into drama, into narrative. You know, that, that becomes a tough thing, and, and I'd like to try to bore down on it a little bit mm-hmm. um, because it's, there's a way to do it wrong mm-hmm. uh, or there's a way to do it in sort of a clumsy way. And I think you guys are very elegant about turning ideas into either character-based scenes or, or dramatic narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, if you can get it coming, if you can get that coming, out, flowing out of character, then you're there. Uh, I, you know, to, which is a vague way to put it. If the person needs to talk about it, you, you, that's what you do. You contrive the situation where the person needs to talk about it. So to take that example... Um, uh, take one example of Niska and George in series one. She, uh, you know, we've characterised her as somebody, you know, who is angry at humans and has a very kind of stark view about what they are. And so she needs to challenge him. She needs to kind of assert her superiority. She also has this kind of vulnerability and lack of esteem and she's sort of childlike, which is actually something that the actress gave us. And it wasn't so much there. One of the nice things about writing as you go on is that you see that, oh, Emily's doing this thing that she sort of plays this sort of petulance and there's a kind of, uh, you know, there's something about, you know, childlike sometimes. And then we can respond to that as we go, you know. Um, and so she, she needs to talk to him about it. It's when uh, your characters sit around dryly talking about it, you know, because uh, uh, it's of intellectual interest. You, you just have to put it into the drama. Uh, there was one example I can think of at the, towards the end of series one where um, Gemma's character, you know, Anita Mia, the, uh, the face of the show, she starts. She actually mentions the problem of other minds. So that's kind of we went into real. We actually one of the few moments where we didn't um, bury the uh, bury the philosophy in the characters and in the kind of natural exchange of what they need, what they want, the drama, you know. Um, but they actually actually spoke, about, articulated mm-hmm. it, and unsurprisingly. We, we cut it, you know, Fine. in the uh, thing. It was good, and I sort of missed it because it's a really fascinating idea and it's some, you know, just wants to us. It's nice to hear it's actually articulated. And she does a brilliant job because, you know, she, she can play it in that way that there, there's such kind of clarity of thought and mm-hmm. articulousness from the sins. And Gemma is herself like that, you know, that she, the way she delivered it was great and she made it clear and... Um, but it didn't come from, didn't flow naturally out of the drama. It wasn't something she needed to say because it pertained to her dilemma in that moment. <laughs> uh, so therefore, uh, it was necessary. That it was ruthlessly, uh, <laughs> ruthlessly cold. You know, and the, I mean, the other thing we did was in, in episode one was, <clears throat> you know, which is a bit more of a trick. Um, but it, but for an episode one, you you know you, you have a bit more license, I think, to do things like this. Is that we had the interview on the news, which with the guy. Uh, so that kind of gives him a platform. Mm-hmm. That gives him a legitimate platform to say, well, this, 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 and this, and you know, and, and kind of do a list of ideas. And then we use that as a you know the, the soundtrack to a montage of all of our characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wouldn't want to do that. You kind of get to do that once a series, I think. Right. Uh, and you have to. You should probably do it in episode one. Right. As you say, there's yeah. leeway in, yeah. in a pilot. I think a lot of the ideas are sort of born out of our desire to sort of treat the treat the world in as realistic a way as possible as well. Um, so when we sat down to think about it, you know, what what actually would a world like this look like? 
Um, and that's where we got things like um, Matty, the sort of angsty teen. Um, you know, it made total sense to her that she would think, well, why the hell am I going to school? You know, what am I studying for when in a couple of years' time everything's going to be done by machines anyway? Mm-hmm. And Toby, you know, when this um, beautiful synth is brought into the house, he's going to have the hots for it. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot, of, a lot of the sort of those sort of charactery bits come out of just thinking, trying to sort of be as real as possible mm-hmm. um, about the idea. And extrapolating the situations, I guess, that mm-hmm. you have. Um, were there wrong roads that you guys went down in this in the first season? Always. <laughs> um, Do you recall any? I mean, I would imagine there was also, and, and I'm guessing, mm. you know, the again, the story in that first season felt so small mm. uh, in, in the best ways, right? It was big ideas presented in a small way, which is the best kind mm. of TV, I think. Uh, you know, it's mm. what the West Wing did really well. Mm. Um, was there the tendency or, or maybe the desire to push more story into that first season? We certainly wanted to steer clear of, um, you know, getting the getting the balance right in the in the first season was really important between the domestic stuff and the thrillery stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there the, there would be a sort of a natural tendency to think, okay, it's about robots. It's going to be about the rise of the robots. We're going to terminated territory, and we were always very very careful to sort of pull back on that mm-hmm. uh, and keep it about um, the family and the introduction of these. Uh, machines into their world mm-hmm. yeah i mean we wrote you know we um in terms of wrong roads the first draft that we wrote was um of episode one had this um sort of incongruous action sequence mm. isn't it uh, uh, which we'd written you know purely as an expression of our own anxiety about our own abilities we thought well let's put something in there that we've done before and we know it works yeah. and we can do right it's uh, so we get some guns this, in there get right. some guns in there there was something happening there was like a you know there was a progress bar <laughs> somebody was getting, trying to get something off a hard drive there was bad guys closing in with taser shotguns then there was people running away and bowling out you know there was I think it was Niska like, before we put her in, before we'd come up with her new story, like lowering the shoulder and yeah, bowling somebody over there. Doors and, <laughs> and then there was, no, that's right, Niska was showing up in a car, and you know, there's a, there was a proper kind of, um, you know, Matrix style moment where somebody shoots like a taser dart. We've invented this weapon, a taser dart, you know, and it's flying through, and time slows down. She sees it and she <laughs> reverses the car into a skid so it hits the back of the car rather than the front. And it's not, you know, and it was like, yeah, yeah, it was pure nonsense. <laughs> I mean, it would, you know, yeah. fine, it would have been fine and great and something else. But um, sure, well, it's it a is, process I mean, saying, you know, yeah. but we had great encouragement from people around us saying, you know, you don't actually need to hmm. put this thing in just because we know why you put it in, but you don't actually need it because the other stuff is working. So we had the confidence to yeah. take out those those genre elements that we were just tacking on right. and really focus on the genre elements that really needed to be in there and came naturally in the story, right. which there are loads, right? But, um, yeah, so we, we, we put that on purely as like a sort That's of a life, <laughs> life vest. And was well, the, it it would the, have doubled the cost of the pilot <laughs> as <yeah>. well. <laughs> it, it, does, it feels like the kind of thing that you put in because you think this is what a TV show should have, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's not what this TV show should have necessarily. Mm. Exactly. Um, and then uh, coming into season two, yeah. you know, I imagine 
there must have been some talk about how to keep the family in it because you do open mm-hmm. the world so much at the end of season one yeah. uh, in such a, again, a natural, great way. Mm. Um, but, you know, that must have been a, a big puzzle for you guys. Yeah, it was. Um, it's funny, a lot of people have said that. You know, people are you know, very keen observers of TV and people who understand it, you know, all like, oh, how are they going to bring that the family back in? We've heard it a lot. Um, but we were determined to find a way to do it uh, because they are so important to making it feel real. And as soon as you, it would have been quite easy to ditch the family and just follow the, the synths on their quest. Mm-hmm. You've got a much more conventional show mm-hmm. then, and I think that you've got a, you've got a lot, uh, the show is less rich. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, it's not to say it wouldn't have still been good and people wouldn't have come with us, but we were completely determined to keep the family in because it was about two families and it was about the, the human perspective on those issues, and it would have felt like half the show had gone. Um, so very early on in that process, we thought, well, here we we know well it's clear it's clear how the family are brought back into it mm-hmm. by the end of episode one yeah. um and when we came up with that we thought well that that will do and everything will flow from that um you know but there, there's real bonds been made between them they're the only humans that the synth know that they can trust and can help them so it's not it should never have been too hard you know, right. to, to it could, it's not an impossible puzzle to solve. No, I mean, you feel like they belong mm. there, but it is, yeah. you know, there's some plotting that has to happen, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 You have yeah, to yeah, sort of set that up. got to bring them, uh, bring them back in. But um, in a way, they inter- actually integrate even more closely and emotionally by the, by the end of this series. Because okay. um, we do feel about this series that it, it gets better as, as it goes. And we're, we're really, really proud of the end. I think it's the best thing we've we've done. That's what a good feeling. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to feel you know because um, you always have you know so much more time to think about your pilot mm. and support and you have so much more time with your director usually because you have that long run in and then you get not very little time with your you know director on the end and so that's why we, we planned it well but it's, it's really paid off and um, I think so people certainly seem to think so in, in the UK yeah um, so yes but no they they always had to be a big big part of it. it come yeah, they're, they're the heart of the show, really. Well, that's it's an interesting thing. I almost said that, but it feels like everyone is the heart of the show, mm-hmm. and I think that's a really tricky thing to do, and this is sort of, this is a tricky question, but you know, I think there's a tendency when we're dealing with non-human characters to for the audience to have a distance from them, mm-hmm. and I think you guys walk the line really well that we immediately empathize with uh, Mia, with Anita when she's Anita, and then with Mia, and then with all of these synth characters. They they have our our sympathy and our empathy very early on. Is there? Can you speak to that at all? I, I've got to say, I think actually the opposite may be true, and I really? think it's really complicated, and it's, a, it's something that we learned. Um, we in the in in the writing of series one, I think you know a lot of our partners would say, you know, oh, we're going to love the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, are we going to really care about these things? And me and John always felt, no, yeah, they are because you know they're human actors, and it's a complicated process of transference of feelings. But they're human actors, and you know we're going to you know, portray them in a positive light for the main part, and that they're suffering, and you know it doesn't matter that the you know we consciously know they're not human. We see the human actor, we understand the dilemma. Mm-hmm. We, we it doesn't even need to be a human actor. You know, you see a, a dog with its foot in a snare, you feel sorry for it. It's in pain, etc. That is not an exclusively human-to-human process. 
Um, but we know we still said no, no. We think we think it'll be okay. We think it'll be okay, and we sort of just crossed our fingers. When the show went out, people went, "We love these sins. Go, Mia, kill the family." They were <laughs> oh like, my God. "Can we? Can we? Is it okay to swear? <laughs> you know, we uh, is it okay to is it okay to swear?" You know, people were saying like, "You know, fuck the family." You know, we don't. We're not interested in the family. Kill them. They, I read several tweets saying, "Kill that annoying family." <laughs> yeah, me, Anita, rise up and kill that annoying family. And I think that pe- people actually find it sometimes easier to con- empathise and connect with a non-human character because there's not the, they, you know, there's not the, the vast coastal shelf of prejudice and class and discrimination and who are you and what you know what do you want and suspicion and you know you, people sure. want you know other other people want things right mm-hmm. and that, they might want something that is contrary to what you want right. and so that is why we approach you know that's why we are shy that's why we approach interactions you know carefully you know but with a our you know our sins our, our innocence you know you have Niska who is angry but you've seen we know why she is right. she's suffering horribly we have Max who is you know clearly a childlike innocent and is also played ridiculously sympathetically by Ivana <laughs> Jobaya and then you have Anita at the heart of it who is incredibly beguiling and mysterious and light, and you see the little girl like that. it's easier for the audience to um, you know sympathise and empathise with non-human characters sometimes portrayed in in a certain way yeah. you know and maybe it's a kind of weirdly troubling and misanthropic trend that, <laughs> it, it but you know other people way. right hell is hell is other people right you know so if you're told that you know um, you know this is actually not a person right mm-hmm. but yeah and the, but look they're hurting and they're and they're, mm-hmm. wan- and they're wondering why somebody's doing this to them then it's easier to feel sympathy whereas yeah. maybe you think you know they're, they're innocence it's really. I mean, maybe it comes down to it they're innocence whereas if you see like yeah. a uh, an adult man being um, you know dragged down the street you might think well maybe he's done something mm-hmm. but you don't you know you wouldn't think that about a, like, uh, a cow I'm so putting some very unusual images out there. <laughs> Dragging you know. a cow down the street would be tough. Yeah, that would be tough. You need, oh, a, yeah. you know, you think. Yeah. Yeah, if you true. see that, you think that was that poor cow done. So I think it's similar. You know, <laughs> the cow cannot possibly have done anything to deserve that treatment. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what happens. Mm-hmm. And you think, and then we think, you, know, you think of Wally. Would Wally be mm-hmm. more sympathetic if he was like a, a, a boy? No, no like, mm-hmm. I don't think so. That's true. Um, so that's really that was a really really interesting thing. We actually. Um, stop me if I'm rambling, but we, we, in the course of our research, we met this incredibly interesting guy, one of many interesting people that we met, called Christoph Koch, who is a the world's kind of one of the world's leading um, researchers into consciousness, and he's a neuroscientist, and he runs like a, the Institute for Neuroscience in Seattle or something. Anyway, he's f- fearsomely clever and knows everything there is to know about consciousness. So it was pretty, you know, good to speak to him. And it, well, the one thing that really fascinated him about our show was that Odie, uh, who is one of the synths who is explicitly said to be unconscious and is not capable of thought and feeling, is one of the characters who the audience loves the most. Hmm. You know, so you do not need the appearance of uh, consciousness to feel um, a deep sort of sympathy and empathy. You know, even as you're told, no, no, this thing can't feel. It doesn't matter. It looks like it can. It feels like it can. That's all that matters. That's and of course, that's how we judge consciousness in others. You know, we just assume. I'm just assuming that you're conscious. I can't. I'm not inside your head. I will never know. That's the problem with other minds. Um, Does that? I'm going. I'm going on. No, it's really interesting <laughs> stuff. Does that audience sympathy dynamic 
mm. inform storytelling? I mean, does it, with people saying, go ahead and kill the family, do, do you course correct uh, in that series, or does it inform the second series? Uh, not explicitly like that. I mean, we, we knew... Um, we knew sort of off the back of the first series which characters were sort of favourites and, and the thing is there are favourites as well you know it's, it's saying that Odie is is a, a, an audience favourite he's one of our favourites so we knew that you know um, we wanted to bring him back and do more with him so it, it kind of informs it in that way um, I don't think we respond explicitly you know sure. that explicitly to I, think, of, I think maybe just in that we uh, no, we have to work harder to make the human characters uh, likable, if that's what we want to do. You know, you mm. always want to make them likable. But if you want people to really root for them and understand their dilemmas, that's tougher than it is for the synth characters. We almost sort of know that people are going to, you know, be open and receptive to the synth characters. Um, so what we've done this year is try and go the other way with the synth character and, and see what mm. happens. And... Um, yeah, and test that a bit, <laughs> which I think we do. But again, it happened again in series two. There was a there's a synth character who people responded to really, really positively. Who was not the first moment to be. they appeared on screen? Was she in the f- first episode? Um, it's not necessarily a she. Oh, okay. Um, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'm conscious of spoilers. But you know, yeah, that's fair. anyway, um, yeah, responded so uh, positively that we were like, oh. Maybe that character could have been around, but um, uh, I, won't, I won't say any more than that. That's fair. Um, when does the second series premiere in the U.S. on AMC? Uh, it starts on the thirteenth of February. Okay, great. I think we'll be out right before or that week, uh, and people should cool. watch it. And the first season is available somewhere. Somewhere, I know. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah, it's, it's hard not find to find it. it. Is it on Amazon here? It's on the AMC website. I think I don't so. Want yeah, I, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, thank you. I thank think, you very much. You know, people will really enjoy it. Uh, I know the UK audience definitely did. And I don't know what the numbers are here, but I know more people should be watching because <laughs> I want to talk about it. <laughs> um, we wrap up as we always do by asking you guys what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what are you talking about with each other, your loved ones? Have you seen movies that you love, books you want to recommend? Uh, I've just finished watching the second series of The Leftovers, mm-hmm. which I love. and I know Sam is a big fan of as well. Mm-hmm. And I heard um, the second season was terrific, like better than the first even. I think it is better uh, than the first. It's it um, significantly better than the first, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's extraordinary. It's, such a, it's a sort of... Um, it's a masterclass in pure storytelling, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fabulous, yeah. And Justin Theroux should be a movie star. I don't understand why it's not like a major film star. Mm-hmm. Um, what have I been watching? Well, I just, um, I just did the too much TV thing, but I just what, happened to watch two episodes of You're the Worst, the FX comedy, on the plane um, over here. And I was like, oh, this is good. Oh, that's, this is really good. Oh, I'm going to watch it. And then I sort of also felt this sinking feeling like, how am I ever going to find the time to watch this? Like, how many, <laughs> right. Are there like three series of exactly. this? How am I going to do it? Thank God it's half an hour. I will manage to do it. I thought that was <laughs> really great. The opening two episodes of that, I thought, oh, this, is, this is fantastic. Um, what else? Well, I've been ca- catching up on movies. I've, I've only watched uh, Midnight Special recently, mm-hmm. uh, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was superb. 
Transparent, I just finished the third series of. That, that for me, is probably the best show on TV of the last few years. And it's not even on TV, which mm. tells you something. Um, that is, yeah, that's one, kind of my favourite. Are there uh, <clears throat> British yeah. series that we don't, aren't, aren't getting or we don't know about that you can recommend? I think, fortunately, you're, you're, you're getting the really yeah. good ones. The moment. <laughs> Catastrophe <laughs> is, you know, you know yeah. probably my favourite uh, British show of the last couple that's of years. Fantastic. So, um that's over here. We claim that as ours. Yeah, because oh, that's fine. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, fine. Yeah. Um, no, I think the, the the best stuff really does make its way over mm-hmm. here. Now. I mean, people are you know we've been having meetings this week and people are talking about Happy Valley, which is mm-hmm. so profoundly kind of English that you know it's, you, you might think for a second that I think like ten years ago that wouldn't have travelled right. I don't I think, think right. that would have found it, but I think that much much more open and receptive to things like that now mm-hmm. you know there's that old saying that the more specific you are the more universal you are and that is a great happy valley is such a profoundly developed sense of place people know that it just stinks of truth and reality <laughs> and so you know i think they can you know if you keep an open mind anybody can enjoy that show it's fantastic oh, for sure. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, these are all good answers Oh, thank you. Oh, thank God. We passed. What would, be, what would be a bad answer? You did all right. Let's be okay, honest. Thanks. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a pleasure. It's been a huge it's pleasure. It's been thanks a lot of fun. Thanks Good very luck much. with the show, and hopefully we'll see a third series. From Fingers crossed. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Now leaving Nerdist.com.